Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com slash laser. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 21st, 2020, the final week of the 2020 regular season. We made it, and in a year of uncertainty, Getting this far into the season, avoiding any major delays because of COVID-19 is an accomplishment in itself for the White Sox. But after clinching a postseason berth last week, this team is looking to clinch the American League Central. Unfortunately, the White Sox didn't have the best weekend in Cincinnati, losing two out of three. And the Chicago Cubs didn't help much either as the Twins won two out of three at Wrigley Field. So the White Sox lead is just two games as they head to Cleveland for a four-game series. We'll preview that series later in the show, and we'll also talk about the Chicago White Sox defense and which individual players have a shot at winning a gold glove this season with Mark Simon. Mark is from Sports Information Solutions, and they help compile defensive runs saved statistics that help influence voters and he provides insight on how Jose Abreu has improved defensively why Luis Roberts metrics are off the charts and how Tim Anderson has gone from the worst defensive shortstop in baseball to now league average at the end of the show we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox but first let's recap what happened in Cincinnati some home runs, impressing a national TV audience, and the debut of Garrett Crochet were the good things. But the bad things is that the White Sox lost two out of three. Dylan C. struggled again. Ross Detweiler may have lost his magic. And Tim Anderson was pulled from the series finale 
due to injury. Let's start there. And joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I don't think it's end of the world that the White Sox lost two out of three against Cincinnati. The Reds are a pretty good team. But watching Anderson get pulled from Sunday's game is a good reason to worry. Yeah, it was a little bit of a uh, a heart-stopping moment, seeing him clutch his hamstring. The White Sox have been downplaying it. They, they call it spasms and saying that he wanted to play, but he took a swing and it seized up on him again. So they are just, you know, there was really no reason to try to chase a win where a win probably wasn't there. So, you know, the, the long-term forecast won the day. So hopefully that's, uh, you know, indicative of what's actually happening. Maybe gets a day off tomorrow and comes back. He could very well be in the lineup tomorrow. So I guess we'll find out, or that'll be our first sign is probably around like three o'clock tomorrow or, or Monday. Yeah. This is coming out Monday, three o'clock later today saying that, uh, you know, I, I guess the first indication, and then we'll hear from Renteria after that, but sounds like at least they're downplaying it. And I think if it were more serious, you'd probably hear more about Danny Mendick coming up or something like that. Yeah. And gosh, this is where you just have to hope because again, the White Sox have clinched the postseason berth and it would be great for them to win the American League Central gym. But man, for some of these guys like Anderson, or Abreu, or Robert. There's part of me that's like, let's wrap them in bubble wrap mm-hmm. and uh, make sure that they do not get hurt because if Anderson gets hurt, goodbye whatever chances the White Sox have in the postseason. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you're seeing the White Sox weigh that too because, I mean, Jonathan Stever, the way his start went, uh, where he got no swinging strikes uh, whatsoever, uh, basically throwing batting practice, that's kind of a case where, you know, we saw that he wasn't that good against the Tigers in the first inning, and you can see against a better offense that maybe his stuff just doesn't have what it takes to compete at the major league level. Sure enough, it didn't, but I mean, you know, if they're looking to get Dallas Keuchel on schedule and they're careful with him and looking to get Lucas Giolito on schedule, you just kind of have to pat it somehow, so... You know, that thinking, it seems like if they're willing to give Stever a start, whatever happens, happens, uh, then it seems like, you know, being very careful with Anderson is kind of the same thing. You know, it, it's logically consistent in that uh, the big picture is getting all your key guys healthy for uh, the first week of the postseason. And I know Anderson wants to play, right? He's chasing a batting title. He's still part of the conversation for American League MVP. And we talked about that a couple podcasts ago when looking at the MVP cases for the White Sox, and that was something that was against Tim Anderson for his case to be MVP, is that he's not going to play as many games as the other contenders because of injury. I just hope that there... I I don't see a need to really push Tim Anderson at this moment. If he, you know, if off the plane in Cleveland, waking up Monday morning, and it's still bothering him... I hope that Rick Renteria has no hesitation having Yomer Sanchez start at shortstop and, you know, give Anderson another day off. I know Anderson had Friday off after the White Sox clinched the postseason, uh, but this cannot be something where it goes from Tim Anderson has hamstring spasms to, well, now Tim Anderson has pulled his hamstring and he's out 10 days yep. because then then the White Sox are screwed. Yeah, but I think so far, you know, based on the, at least reading the body language uh, between Renteria and Anderson and the trainers when they're looking at him and he was trying to give it a go and uh, what they said afterwards, seems like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give them uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt and that they have the, 
um, you know, that they're, that they're framing the, uh, seriousness or the severity of it properly. Now over on the good sticking with Tim Anderson on Saturday night, it was a national broadcast and he got a chance to wear the mic while he was in the field and he got a lot of attention, especially for his comments during the game, which was great. And it was a awesome opportunity for a national audience to get to meet Tim Anderson. Uh, a lot of baseball fans don't get that opportunity like White Sox fans do watching Tim Anderson every single game. But for him to back that up by hitting two home runs, including one off Trevor Bauer, was awesome. Jim watching the national broadcast and Anderson having that opportunity to wear the mic and hitting the two home runs. Do you think that elevates his national profile? Uh, a little bit, you know, it grabs a new cycle for, you know, half a day. I think I, I just think with uh, so many other postseason races going on and I don't think the White Sox were the featured game. There are a number of games on Fox at the time. So, uh, I couldn't see it on Fox live myself. I had a VPN in to catch it. I had to work around it because I got Braves Mets, so if that was the featured game, then, you know, perhaps I, I don't think it's like a uh, grabbing the uh, headlines for more than just like a, a, a couple of really good tweets and some you know, shares and Facebook likes and so forth. However, you know, I do like that, you know, he was wearing the microphone. He was uh, uh, I, I like that he was trying to pump up Matt Foster at one point, you know, trying to get them to talk about Matt Foster, uh, even though he's not the most exciting guy, whether in terms of like, um, you know, mound demeanor or you know he's not really a, a particularly uh jiffable pitcher uh but he you know gets the job done he was trying to uh you know draw some attention there but to hit two homers against uh trevor bauer in a in a matchup where he's going to be getting up for it and perhaps you know maybe a bit over eager for it i, I hope that's somewhat indicative of how he's going to perform once the postseason ro- rolls around and then this is where you know the profile i think will really jump if he shows up if he's able to you know, hit a big homer or, uh, you know, you know, use his legs to stretch a, a single into a double or, or score from first in a key play, a mad dash type situation. If he's there doing something, being able to pump up his team and, uh, on, on that kind of national stage, then I think uh, that'll get people talking. It'll last a bit longer. Now let's move over to, I guess, the concern. And that is Dylan C. Dylan was on the mound making the start on Sunday and his performance, his final line is one of the weirdest final lines that you will see from a starting pitcher. He threw three innings, did not give up a hit, allowed three earned runs, walking seven, and striking out five. One of the weirdest pitching lines ever. Yeah. Yeah, I looked it up uh, on, on on Play Index, or I think it's Stathead now for baseball reference. Just looking up, like, what other White Sox starts are similar, and there really aren't any. Like, there are a lot of starters who lasted maybe one inning or one plus or or less than one and didn't give up a hit but walked three or four batters or hit a couple. And, you know, they're mostly, like, in the 60s, 50s, um, and you know, earlier than that. And that was the era where, like, if it was a big game or if they were leveraging starters or if they were, like, starting a guy on, like, three days rest, uh, if they didn't like the way he looked, they would just go to the long man. Like it was just, they, they handled struggling starters differently, especially if they were maybe starting on a schedule where the, the hopes might've been not that high in the first place. So in terms of like any kind of modern comparison for white Sox pitchers, there really isn't one. Four starts in September for cease. He's got a 4.58 ERA, 
He's only covered 17.2 innings in those four starts, so just averaging roughly a little more than four innings per appearance. He's allowed 14 hits. He's only allowed one home run. That's the good side. He's walked 14, and he's only struck out 12. Compared to his starts in August, he made six starts in August with a 2.14 ERA, covering 33 and two-thirds innings pitch, so more than five innings per start. 24 hits allowed, six home runs, so a home run per start. And he had 18 walks to 26 strikeouts. And in the start against Cincinnati, Jim, Cease ditched the windup and he went from the stretch, which is something that I suggested and we have talked about a couple weeks ago. Maybe this is a quick fix type of solution that could help Cease with this command. Well, it didn't help. And at the moment, I'm out of any quick ideas to suggest on how Cease can improve his command. Do you have any ideas? Not really. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm reading a, a tweet from James Fegan uh, relaying a quote from Cease after the game where he said that all his misses were the same and that he cited yanking the ball glove side as the primary issue. Can it be fixed quickly? Uh, Fegan quotes Cease saying, I've done it before. And he kind of has done it before in spring training, but this season, not really. Um, you know, he's mainly been getting by on, may, I guess, maybe being able to correct it for brief periods, you know, kind of on and off, like toggling it off or like he has to like, you know, um, you know hit the side of his uh, delivery in order to get it back working again. It kind of works for maybe five innings before uh, going on the fritz again. So I'm not convinced that he can fix it. I don't really have high hopes from this season. I think it was something that might have gotten lost in the pandemic delay because it seemed like, you know, he had fixed it during the spring. He had thrown a couple different starts um, where he had seen um, just improved command, uh, the ability to repeat and hit the same spot over and over again where the catcher was setting up and not just the same spot like he was before where he's just yanking everything into the left-handed batter's box. But right now, I mean, like, you know, if he's saying he's done it before, it's like, well, he should have been able to do it over the last, you know, four starts. Uh, this has been pretty much characteristic of his outings as of late. And uh, you really, even if he has like a one, two, three inning, you don't feel necessarily great that he's going to be able to do it again or it's going to carry over or just one, uh, you know, a couple of bad pitches in a row, um, you know, are going to set the trend for the rest of the inning. So I am skeptical for, you know, the rest of the season. I guess he gets one more start to prove himself over Dane Dunning. But for the time being, I guess you know, as long as Dunning looks good and fully functional, then it seems like there's no reason to think about Cease necessarily for a start in the wildcard round. Yeah, Cease's next start is going to be the first game against the Chicago Cubs. That is Friday, September 25th. Hopefully, there is nothing riding on that game because the White Sox come out of Cleveland with at least a three-game lead over Minnesota. They have won the American League Central due to tiebreakers. Uh, So there's an opportunity for the White Sox to clinch the division in Cleveland before Cease gets the ball. Um, but as you mentioned, Jim, that that's going to be Cease's last chance to instill any confidence that he could be counted on to start any type of postseason game, even if it's the American League Divisional Series, as they're not going to have off days. You're going to you're going to go play back to back to back games, and if you get to Game Four, yeah, you're going to need Cease because in a perfect situation, Giolito went Game One. And Giolito may not be able to start on three days rest, or you may not want Giolito uh, to start on three days rest. 
So our show poll, which you could follow us on Twitter, we're at Socks Machine, and you could also follow me on Twitter at Socks Machine underscore Josh. Our poll for this podcast, what role do you want Dylan Cease to serve in the postseason? And uh, we had over 650 votes uh, after Sunday's game, after Cease's start on Sunday. 71% Jim wants Cease to pitch out of the bullpen in the postseason with only 28% wanting Cease to continue to be a starter. What role do you think Cease should serve on a White Sox postseason roster? I'm not sure the bullpen is a good idea just because if you want him to come in and throw strikes, he can't guarantee that. Yeah, He seems like he's going to make his own trouble. So if you drop him in later in a game uh, where you want him to get uh, an out or not allow hard contact, keep the ball in the park, which he... You know, that's the frustrating thing about watching him on on Sunday was that he was throwing... Yeah, like in terms of when he got stuff in the zone, we got him to swing... The contact wasn't great. They were hitting the ball, keeping it on the ground, or pretty much just pulling it on the ground to the first base side. And if Abreu didn't get it, it was hit behind Abreu to Madrigal, who was shifted over that way, and he let it just go to the outfield grass. But the the, the exit velocity wasn't remarkable. Um, so, I mean, there was no reason for him to be skittish, which is why, you know, I'm more skeptical. Well, I guess you can look at it either way. You can say, like, if it's mental, you might not be able to fix that. But if it's physical, it's like something just, like, physically mechanically prohibiting him from throwing strikes when he has no reason not to, or no reason to fear the strike zone. Then I think that's just something that's harder to fix or just, you know, based on what he's shown, just it's a bad habit. He can't quite shake, but you know, my, my thinking right now is we'll see if Reynaldo Lopez changes this right now. I think Lopez is kind of getting by with uh good fortune too. He's more Homer prone. So I think, uh, you know, for keeping the ball in the park, if you if you treat that as a premium, I'm not a big fan of him getting postseason starts. But I think you know, depending on the shape of the bullpen, if the bullpen is like relatively available and, and decently rested, um, and we're just like a you know taxed for seven innings the game before, I think I would go with Cease for like counting on him for three innings. They could be like the ugliest innings in the world, but they I think they'll be like decent three innings, but then afterwards you have to be able to get the bullpen up, have a plan for going four through nine uh, and be prepared for a three walk start to an inning like he did on Sunday, just because he's shown that ability to just get off the rails. And usually managers are more aggressive about yanking pitchers and shorter leashes and all that quicker hooks. So, you know, it would be, I think not out of the character of October baseball to let him do that. So that would be my idea. It's not going to be elegant, uh, but you know, given that Cease doesn't have a problem with loud contact when he throws strikes, I think that at least gives him a fighting shot. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Have Cease start three innings, then maybe go to Gio Gonzalez for two innings, and if you get through the fifth inning, then you can at least get the ball to Foster, who has proven that he can take on two inning appearances out of the bullpen before handing the ball off to. Cody Hoyer, who has been great for the White Sox. And if they have a lead, then Hoyer can hand the ball off to Alex Colome and close up shop and you win that game. But I'm with Yeah, we'll see. We'll see Evan Marshall too. He might be back, or I guess he's supposed to be back. And right. Uh yeah, that, that's another case too. But yeah, they they should have arms. Yeah, as long as they weren't just completely wiped out uh the day before. Yeah, so the expectations change. It's you know, the last month we've been hoping to see Cease kind of have a breakout start, Jim, where he goes six, seven innings, much like Dane Dunning had against Minnesota 
Minnesota last week where Dunning got through seven innings and struck out seven, only allowed two runs. We've been hoping to see that from Dylan Cease because Cease has got better stuff than Dunning. He just hasn't been able to put it all together. I don't know at any point in this season, uh, his ERA is a mirage. And for all of those that say ERA doesn't matter or it's not that important, man, you got a great case study with Dylan Cease because uh, he's still got a sub four ERA and there will be a lot of people that look at his ERA and say, what do you mean he's struggling? He's got a 3.5 ERA. He's doing great. Uh, not really the case. So I, I think at this moment, I'm with you for whatever role that he's going to serve for the White Sox. I think he's got to be that starting pitcher that you hope can get through three innings, not allow a run. There'll be a lot of traffic on the bases, uh, but at least hand off the ball so the White Sox have a chance to have a lead and it's not too big of a hole that's been dug by Dylan Cease. And uh, yeah, I, I think you can survive that way. Many, many teams have done that in the last decade and have won a World Series. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. But right now, I just don't think that there's any reason for anyone following the White Sox to trust Dylan Cease can be that five-plus inning starter in the postseason. And it's unfortunate, but hopefully 2021 in a normal year, a normal off season, a normal spring training seas can get back on track and become the pitcher that we think he can be, especially uh, with the stuff that he has. Cause again, you're not going to find many starting pitchers who throw 98, 99 and have the type of elite slider that Cease has. And if you could develop that third pitch, which looks like he wants that to be the changeup, he, he could still be a mid rotational starter. We're not giving up on Cease, but now, you know, we got to shrink as far as the focus and as the team goes into the postseason, and when you're talking about postseason rosters and expectations of performance, right now you're just hoping you get three good innings out of Dylan Cease, and, and you're happy with that. Now, a debut this weekend, kind of a surprise, that was announced on Friday uh, after we had recorded the Sox Machine Live when the White Sox had clinched the postseason. The White Sox called up their 2020 first-round pick, Garrett Crochet, And Garrett Crochet made two appearances this weekend. He pitched two innings. He had two strikeouts and he only allowed one hit, which was a single. He threw 28 pitches, 13 of them registered within a release speed of 100 plus miles per hour. His fastest pitch thrown was a 101 and a half miles per hour, Jim. So what's your first impression on Garrett Crochet? The pants were a little goofy. That's the, your uh, first impression, <laughs> not the velocity, not no, the, how he the, looked, his pants. No, yeah, no, I mean, like, it, it reminded me of, like, uh, a super Matt Thornton, just in terms of the, you know, it was extreme velocity, more than even Thornton had, but just very much in control. You know, the uh, the delivery looked repeatable. Uh, he didn't look overwhelmed. And uh, I was watching the Cincinnati Reds broadcast uh, over the weekend because I'm in Reds territory. I learned that <laughs> this weekend, but <laughs> I, I didn't know that, you know, they mentioned like the last guys to make it to the majors without throwing a single pitch in the minors. And I didn't realize that the last left-hander to do that was Jim Abbott. Like I, I knew a lot of things about Jim Abbott because, you know, he's just an incredible story, but I did not know that he never pitched a game in the minors. 
uh, and, and two very different pitchers, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, but, uh, you know, given his just lack of, you know, the thing that was so weird about crochet is that, you know, not only did he not pitch in the minors, but he didn't have a full, you know, anything resembling a full major college season or, uh, 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 you know, with a, with a big program, not even like a, a full start. So he was even more of a mystery than say like, um, you know, previous, um, you know, like Chris Sale, like we, we knew what he looked like at, at Florida Gulf Coast. We knew what he looked like in Winston-Salem. So when he came up, just like, okay, this is going to be crazy. Let's see what happens. But in this case, you know, just some, some reports out of Schaumburg and some cell phone video, but nothing telling us what he looked like against major league hitters who were trying to demoralize him. So, no, he looked really impressive. I do think that the second outing, uh, the Reds didn't look as startled as they were the first time. Maybe having some video helped. Uh, maybe having uh, you know just you know some looks, some in-person uh, scouting reports for them helped. But the swings were better. So I think you know while having two kind of ugly, sleepy blowout losses, or at least you know uh, low leverage losses, hurts. It did help to have uh, Crochet in those situations where. He could throw competitively against hitters, you know, real good hitters who want to still pad the lead. And if it didn't go well, it wouldn't have hurt the White Sox chances to win a game. I think that's important right now with Crochet is just having these appearances to where if it doesn't work out or if he looks like a guy who hasn't thrown a minor league pitch, uh, it shouldn't be his fault. You know, that, that's, you know, that's why I'm curious about his uh, path going forward into the postseason because there is that hanging over everything, which you know, might not bother him. He just might be too freakishly talented for that to matter. But it is something, I think, to keep in mind. He's got to be on the postseason roster, though, right? Even if yeah, Aaron so. Bummer is healthy and ready to pitch again, I think you got to have Garrett Crochet on your on your postseason roster. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't think you call him up to not be. Right. Unless he looks completely overmatched, you know, just he can't throw strikes or whatever. But given how he went on the attack and wanted hitters to... Uh, prove that he had to pitch less aggressively or at least maybe mix it up more. And, you know, there, there were some swings that were decent against Crochet on Sunday, but not yet. You know, he hasn't failed yet. And I think this is why long-term, with everything that I wrote leading up to the draft for Garrett Crochet, I think he's going to be an Andrew Miller, Josh Hader type. And we know how effective and dangerous these types of pitchers are especially in a postseason setting where you can get the ball to them and they're going to throw two innings and they're going to be unhittable, almost untouchable. And that is huge for teams, especially in the postseason. I mean, the Milwaukee Brewers almost made it to the World Series and they pushed the Dodgers to the brink in seven games. We saw what Andrew Miller did in 2016, helping carry Cleveland almost across the finish line and winning their World Series. But ultimately, they lost that in seven games. The Brewers and Indians don't get that far without Hader or Miller. And I'm not expecting Crochet to be that type of pitcher in 2020. That is incredibly unfair for Garrett Crochet as far as expectations. But that's what I think long-term what he can be for the White Sox. Because in a starting role, he's not throwing 101 miles per hour in a starting setting. He can't, he can't touch that type of velocity because he's going to empty the gas tank. And he's going to be throwing 94-95 in the third inning. And then you're going to have some problems because hitters are catching up. But even though the White Sox spent their 11th pick overall on Garrett Crochet uh, and didn't get somebody else that could be a bona fide starting pitcher for them, 
I still think Garrett Crochet could be very dangerous for the White Sox. And again, now every team is going to have to prep for this guy that they only right now have two innings of film for, Jim. Mm -hmm. And if he comes out on the mound, they they have to expect 100 miles per hour from the left side. Yeah, I think the one, you know, a couple, uh, you know, things I'm thinking about with Crochet is one that I wouldn't trust him on back-to-back days. I think that's one thing where the White Sox are going to have to, you know, use him selectively, um, you know, in these situations just because we we saw it with Birdie because Birdie barely pitched. I don't think he pitched in back-to-back days um, with Charlotte or at any point coming back from Tommy John surgery, you know, around his Tommy John surgery, the White Sox used him very carefully for two innings sometimes. Like, they didn't, he wasn't quite fragile, but... When it came to recovery, it seemed like they always wanted to give him one extra day. Uh, so I would imagine since Crochet has not pitched in that kind of role um, and he relies on that extreme velocity to get the job done, uh, kind of like Josh, Josh Stalmont too with uh, the Royals. We saw him on back-to-back days during the White Sox-Kansas City series and he looked like a uh, unhittable freak in the first game. In the second game, losing a couple miles per hour, not having the sharpness on his breaking ball really wasn't... He was still a threat, but he wasn't that guy. So I imagine, you know, should he pitch in a game, you wouldn't see him the next day. And I, I think that's fair. And, you know, I think the White Sox are probably going to do the Chris Sale thing uh, in that they're going to, you know, with, with Sale, they, they put him in the bullpen for one full season after his uh, major league debut just to, uh, you know, one, because they could use him, but also just, I think, because it was a way to give him innings <laughs> and I guess maybe uh, more of a test than he would get facing overwhelmed A-ball hitters and double-A hitters and so forth. So, uh, but I'm hoping they, you know, have the same thing in mind with Sale in which they don't, you know, rule it out starting at some point if they need it and if he shows that he can handle major league workload or at least, you know, two, three innings and in an appearance just because there is a lot of value there. Um, but for next year, if they have five starters, if they're able to get one from the open market and he's better off in the bullpen and this team is ready to win now, then seems like a good use for him. And there's some 2021 decisions that could be influenced on how this final week in the postseason goes for Rick Hahn. Because again, Alex Colome is a pending free agent. And mm-hmm. if you don't want to spend... 12 plus million dollars a season on a closer. Well, you may want to look internally. And if you look at the White Sox bullpen, and if you believe in the performance of Cody Hoyer and Matt Foster and Aaron Bummer can get back into his old form after injury and Evan Marshall doesn't have any issues. And now you stick with Garrett Crochet to be in your bullpen full time for the 2021 season. Uh, and you could still bring back Jimmy Cordero and maybe there's somebody else that they can unearth in their minor league system. Maybe a Tyler Johnson mm-hmm. uh, can come out of the blue in 2021 and help the White Sox bullpen. They may have enough internal options where the White Sox and Rick Hahn can say, sorry, Alex, thank you for your time. You did great for us, but I got to spend your $10 million elsewhere to patch holes because I have enough internal solutions for the 2021 season to address the high leverage situations. And man, the, the White Sox all of a sudden have really, really dynamic and interesting arms that they could use late in games. Yeah. Colomay's market, I think is going to be fascinating. I don't know, you know, given his unusual method of, of success, um, 
I, at this point, I trust them. <laughs> I don't trust them to make it easy to watch them, but uh, whatever traffic he allows, he doesn't get phased. So um, I'm, I'm more or less, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine with him closing, but just for teams looking at the numbers, looking at the radar gun readings, the strikeout rate, the walk rate, etc., and and being that the pandemic and, uh, you know, whatever uncertainty they have with, you know, having fans and crowds in 2021, or at least, you know, a good chunk of it. I wonder if they're going to look at him and say like, well, we just don't really want to open. We, we can only open our uh, purse string so much and we don't want to do it for a guy like you. That's, that's my, that's what I'm thinking for Colomir or my fear for him, just because, uh, you know, I think performance wise, he's shown he can hold up, but when it comes to team spending on a guy like him, I'm curious whether he'll be able to find it. I think he's gonna. <laughs> I think he's gonna enjoy time in Philadelphia, uh, or, the, or the Rockies if, if he's the Rockies next contract. <laughs> Let's yeah. get uh, Dan Samborski back to uh, talk about that thought. Yeah, and did they just let Wade Davis go? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I I doubt the Rockies will spend money there, but you still have teams like the Phillies who hope to be in contention next year that have terrible bullpens. That I think yeah. they'll spend the Nationals. Money on. Nationals yeah. have that issue too. So. I mean, yeah, just a matter of getting the contract he wants, the uh, the salary, the raise over his last arbitration year. That might be harder, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's a good point, Jim. But we'll see. Um, again, these are conversations. I already know people are ready for the 2021 Sox Machine offseason plan project. So there I'm you not. go. <laughs> well, I, I, I know Stryker is. <laughs> yeah. He, he's he, he starts his offseason plan in August, but yeah, I think for now, I just I'm enjoying the fact that there's postseason baseball to talk about. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, Jim and I both think that Garrett Crochet should be on that postseason roster, and uh, we'll see on uh, who Rick Hine has for his postseason roster after this final week of the regular season. Again, the White Sox are traveling from Cincinnati to Cleveland for their final four games against American League Central opponents in this regular season. But could this series be a playoff preview? We'll discuss that later in the show. But coming up next, Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions will join us to share the latest defensive metrics for the Chicago White Sox and which players have a realistic shot of winning a gold glove in 2020. Right after a quick word from our sponsors. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser. As we enter the final week of the 2020 regular season, it's nice to shift our focus on the White Sox gunning for a divisional title and ponder which players 
will bring home hardware. We have spent a lot of time wondering who has a better chance of winning the American League MVP, Tim Anderson or Jose Abreu. But we haven't gone too deep wondering who could win gold gloves. It's weird to say that because the White Sox as a team are often not good on defense. But we did see Yomer Sanchez win the award at second base last year. So which White Sox players have a chance to add that gold glove on their trophy shelf in 2020? Well, joining us is a first-time guest and an expert when it comes to advanced metrics and analytics in baseball. From Sports Info Solutions, it's Mark Simon. And hello, Mark. Thanks for joining the show. Hi, thanks for having me, and thanks for the nice intro. Yeah, you know, for those that are on Twitter, I highly recommend following Mark there. He's at Mark A. Simon Says as he routinely posts updates on Major League Baseball defensive runs saved leaderboard, both for teams and individuals. And Mark, I'm always used to looking towards the bottom of the defensive runs saved leaderboard for the White Sox because as a team over the last few years, they haven't been good. But that hasn't been the case in 2020. As we enter the final week of the regular season, where do the White Sox stand as a team defensively? So remarkably, they are fourth overall, uh, and it's very tight in that kind of two to four spot. The Cardinals are, are the best team uh, by a pretty good margin, but then it tightens up when you look at two, three, four, five, and six uh, even. And the White Sox have been there uh, consistently throughout the season, and uh, there are a bunch of reasons for this. I presume that that's your next question. Uh, the, the primary reasons for this are threefold. Uh, one, uh, Luis Robert in center field. Now, the way that our system works, I should note that he does not get like extra credit for stealing balls from Eloy. Like that does not <laughs> factor in. Like if there's a really, if there's a ball that's in the air for six seconds and he's able to get all the way over to left field, that's like an a hundred percent catch probability. So he's not getting, uh, any sort of bonus for that. He is getting, and I, I will note this though. There were a couple of balls, and I actually I know I saw one when I was kind of reviewing uh, this for something that I wrote. There was an at bat earlier this year, and I know they've moved him around a lot, where he was basically playing like 30 feet over in left center, and the ball was hit right at him, and he gets a nice uh, spike for that because center fielders typically don't make that catch. Now he happens to be in the right spot, and he gets the benefit of um, the positioning being given to him rather than the team, which is, uh, I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on, on how our run save works for infielders and outfielders. It's a little different uh, for an outfielder. Mm -hmm. You can get credit uh, for something like that. An infielder would not get credit for something like that. So Luis Roberts number may be a little boosted by the fact that the team has put him in spots to make plays. So that's one. Two is that Jose Abreu looks completely different at first base this year, uh, at least by the statistics. I read something earlier this week that said that last season he had 13 balls that were basically just oives, I guess to use a Jewish phrase. <laughs> um, they, they weren't good, and they cost him considerable amounts on his defensive run save total. He's had a couple of botches this year, but they're not. Uh, they're not necessarily on balls that were gimmies, uh, and they are fewer. And he's been more nimble from what I've seen. Like, he's not waving at the ground ball that's hit to his right. He's making the play and getting the out either at first base or getting the force at second. So that's two. He actually leads first baseman in run save, which you could never have predicted. And I don't know if that would have 
been true over 162 games, but you take what you get. Um, and then lastly, probably the most important is uh, the catching situation with it being Grandal and McCann uh, instead of uh, what the White Sox had last season. Uh, White Sox catchers have combined for eight defensive runs saved, which is second in the majors to the Brewers. Um, and that largely comes from pitch framing and getting strikes, A, on pitches that you should get strikes on, and B, getting strikes on pitches that are maybe a little out of the zone that Grindal or McCann are able to make look a little bit better than they actually are. And that's important, certainly, for guys like Keiko and Jolito. Um, and the difference between last year and this year is humongous. Uh, and I think it was they were negative 15 in our pitch framing run save last year. And this year they're plus 10. So that's a 25 run oh, swing. Wow. And that's crazy. And if you're a basic stats fan who doesn't necessarily look at the advanced numbers, just look at the strikeout to walk ratio for the team comparing last year to this year. They're a little better in strikeouts per nine innings and a little better in walks per nine innings and little betters add up uh, over time. And as a result, uh, the, the White Sox are looking really good in that particular stat. And those guys, uh, Grandal came with a reputation for being good at that. So uh, credit to both of them for getting the job done. So with your threefold, yep. my, one of the players, as you mentioned, that really jumps off the page is Jose Abreu's improvement this year. And as you mentioned, Mark, he's making plays that he wasn't in the past because he's a bit more nimble. When you're watching the video of Abreu's plays, is there anything in particular that jumps off the page to identify what Abreu has done differently or proved upon defensively in 2020 than his previous seasons in the majors? So I'm not going to take credit for this because we had Joe McEwing on our company podcast uh, earlier this year, and he talked about working with Abreu. And so I, I have an educated guess based on what he said. He was talking about Abreu in his younger days, and that Abreu was much, uh, much, it took him a while to learn to kind of be uh, active with his feet uh, pre-pitch and to not be caught flat-footed. And it seems like uh, he's not being caught flat-footed this year. I was watching, there was a ground ball hit last year uh, that I, I remember watching when I was looking over his plays that was against the Phillies where, as I said, he just kind of waved at the ball. Um, and now it seems like he's able to kind of shift over uh, the couple of steps that he needs to uh, to make that play. He's been good uh, in really just about everything. He's been good uh, turning double plays. He made, I know there was one diving play that he made on a bunt uh, that, that led to a force out. And there are a couple of, uh, there have been a couple of bunt moments uh, this year for him. Uh, and that uh, it's a, it's a small contribution to his defensive run save total, but it's something that he didn't necessarily have in the past. Uh, nonetheless, the biggest thing for us is so we can separate it so we can look at like, were you good at balls that were hit to your right? Were you good at balls that were hit to your left? And were you good at everything else? Like kind of the straight on stuff. And this year, the improvement for him on balls hit uh, to his right is probably as big as there would be for just about any infielder with anything. Uh, so that's a credit to him and certainly a credit to the White Sox for putting him in position to make plays. Now, one player you didn't mention in your threefold was Tim Anderson. Yep. yep. And uh, Anderson was not good defensively in 2019. 
Uh, based on your guys' research, last year he cost the White Sox 12 runs at the shortstop position. Yep. On, on Saturday's national broadcast on Fox, Mark, when the broadcast crew was interviewing Anderson uh, when he was in the field, he mentioned that, especially this season, he's still putting in extra work with bench coach Joe McEwing, who you just mentioned, uh, to improve his defense. Are you seeing improvement from Anderson's defense in 2020? Yeah, if I had gone with a fourth reason, I guess that he would have been uh, probably reason number four. Um, So you mentioned last year he was negative 12. uh, And actually in 2017, he was negative 22. Oh, wow. And I I guess the the way to kind of explain that is you kind of know it when you see it. Uh, In 2017, it was a lot of ground balls up the middle that got past him. In 2019, it was a lot of ground balls uh, in the hole that got past him. This year, instead of negative 12, he's negative one. And if you can go from really bad to average, one, you look so much better to the fans. Like, uh, I'll, I'll give an example from the team that I watched the most. The Mets used to have Lucas Duda in left field, and they switched to Eric Young Jr. And Eric Young Jr. was probably a slightly above average left fielder, and Lucas Duda was a slug who should have been a DH. And, um, and Eric Young Jr. made a couple of good plays, and you're like, yeah, those are the kinds of things we should be seeing in left field. And it just it, it kind of relaxes you as a fan that you don't have to worry about some of the stuff that you saw. And I think that's probably the case to an extent with Tim Anderson this year. It's not as bad as it's been in the past. And if you can just go from bad to average, that's a pretty big jump. And it's a jump that will help the team. How far away is Anderson, though, to go from average to the next level where he he closes the gap in France, to Francisco Lindor? Because for us, we assuming Lindor is still with Cleveland next year, Lindor is the best shortstop in the American League Central. I think he may be the best shortstop in all of Major League Baseball. Is Anderson closing that gap? And do you think that he can, if he continues this trend as far as uh, reducing the amount of bad plays that he makes at short? Yeah, so there are two positions where I would say there's no shame in being average or you know 15th or 20th or whatever in the major leagues. And those are shortstop and center field. Because teams put, there are so many great athletes at both of those positions that um, you could still be really good. Like Tim Anderson's probably a better athlete than than shoot most of the people in the world. Um, but uh, you're going up against guys that are like A pluses. So if if Tim Anderson is making I don't know say uh, 90 plays out of 100, he's got to become a guy that that's consistently making 93, 94. Uh, and uh, that doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but guys like Andrelton Simmons and Lindor uh, can make some ridiculous plays, uh, and they're consistent, and I think that's what you look for. Um, Ozzie Smith talked about this with Paul DeYoung, because Paul DeYoung's like the least, if you if you put Paul DeYoung up against the best of, uh, National League shortstops or the best American League shortstops, you'd just be like, eh, he's, uh, he doesn't look the part. But he makes the plays, and in the end, that's what it's about, right? Getting the outs, and uh, you're looking for the guy that's going to make the plays every time rather than the guy that's going to make the one great play and then be a little off uh, other than that. And I say that uh, knowing that uh, in this season there are some short steps that have weird numbers, like Simmons isn't very good this year. Lindor's, Lindor's decent. 
uh, over 160, but over 162 games is the challenge. I think that's that's the thing. It's good. It's not as hard for Jose Bray to look good for 60, uh, but over 162 next year, that's going to be a, a challenge, and it'll be a challenge for Tim as well. We did get some fan questions from our Patreon supporters. One question came from Lou, and this is a very popular topic, Mark, when it comes to White Sox defense. And he's asking what a difference it would make for the White Sox future if Eloy Jimenez could field his position adequately. Is it possible for Eloy Jimenez to be better defensively in left field, or is he a lost cause? (laughs) Oh, man. I feel like that's a better question for the the Steve Stones and Jason Benetti's of the world than me, because I don't watch, like, I, I can only watch so much baseball, and I don't watch the White Sox every day. Um, can't he be better? Uh, I don't know. I guess if I would answer that with um, that the center fielder thinks that he has to go all the way over to left field to catch the ball would tell you that 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 I think the answer to that question, how many other center fielders in baseball actually do that? Like none. Right. So I would, I would be concerned about that. Uh, his best position clearly is hitter. Yeah. I, I, I without seeing him every day, uh, I'm not going to make a judgment on that. I'm sorry that your, your Patreon person doesn't get the, his money's worth on this question, <laughs> but I would, I would be concerned by the fact that the center fielder feels that he needs to run over a hundred feet to make a play. Vark is asking I, I, what I think is a a pretty interesting question for this season. And uh, Vark's asking, there's a lot that goes into evaluating catcher's defensive value. Most are measurable. But how do you account for a catcher's skill in preparing for an opponent and calling games? Pitcher's ERA doesn't seem to be that great of an indicator. And is there anything else that you look at, especially when trying to decide who's having a better defensive season between James McCann and Yasmani Grandal? All right, I am I am like really excited that he asked that question because I just conducted a little um, back and forth with uh, I was on a Braves podcast the other day and Eric O'Flaherty, the former pitcher, was on that podcast and we had he asked the same question and I said let's try something here where we each uh, watch an inning and I will uh, we will or two innings of a game we happen to both wind up watching the Met Brave game the other night. And we will try to come up with, like, how would you figure out a statistic like that for a catcher? Because he he said what your guy said, that doesn't exist right now. And I'm I'm somewhat in agreement uh, with that. So I made a list. Uh, I made a list of six things that I would want to be able to measure to evaluate whether or not my catcher had been good. And I'll go through it uh, quickly here. Uh, did the catcher make calls that resulted in outs against at least 70% of hitters, so 300 OBP or lower? Did the catcher recognize how good the command was of the pitcher for each of his pitches? That one's going to be harder to measure. How are we going to figure out whether the catcher made the right calls? That's probably a conversation with the catcher after the game. Did the catcher make a call that held the pitcher out more than 80% of the time in high-leverage situations? So in other words, late in the game, did he... Did they? Did the pitcher and the catcher seem in sync? Uh, did the catcher's framing result in more strikes? We talked about that already. Did the catcher's sequencing result in the opponent recording a below-average rate of hard-hit balls? Um, that that one is somewhat measurable. And did the catcher visibly do something to help a pitcher through his biggest moments of adversity? I think if we could solve that one, 
and we could solve the how do we know if the catcher recognized that the pitcher had command of his pitches? We could do the thing that he wants to do, that your guy wants to do, and that Eric O'Flaherty wants to do. But it's really, really hard. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't know, um, I don't know how you would do that. Uh, maybe on a at a team level, like the White Sox could say, okay, let's do this as an experiment, and we'll see which of the two guys is better. But as to the other part of the question, like what else can you measure? Um, for a catcher, we actually do do a, a catcher ERA thing, but we do it. Um, we take into account the like if you had five starts with if each catcher had five starts with Keuchel or Jolito, uh, we we compare those, and that's where we kind of make the adjustment. And we look at where the game was played, like if the game was played in like Coors or um, uh, you know a hitter friendly park. Uh, that's taken into account. Um, so we do do a small thing for that. We do a base stealing thing um, in terms of uh, did the catcher uh, limit success uh, with base stealing. We do the the big thing for us though is the strike zone part because we do feel that the catcher has a significant uh, amount of control on that. And we do uh, pitch blocking. Um, so we actually chart uh, every pitch that's in the dirt. Uh, and whether or not the catcher blocked it. And the good catchers are usually in like the mid 90s in terms of percentage with runners on base. Like a good catcher will be like 95% with runners on base. And the bad catchers will be like 88% uh, with runners on base. And seven percentage points over 60 games, 162 games, that becomes a lot of base runner advancement. And guys wind up having uh, run save adjustments because they're either really good at that or not really good at that. Roberto Perez is a, is a good example of someone who was really good at it uh, this year. So long answer, good question. Um, wish I had a better answer. <laughs> Do you think the teams internally are trying to figure out that answer? Because I guess they would have insight of what the game plan was going into that contest of what kind of pitches that they wanted to call right. in certain situations. Right. Like they know, like we don't know. Right. But but the pitching coach uh, or the catcher knows. And you could, I think, in theory, do this, those six questions every game uh, with your pitcher and your catcher and figure it out. I just don't know how you would do that with all 30 teams unless they all have the same <laughs> grading structure and all have the same standard and all filled out the same you know, spreadsheet after every game. Exactly. Yeah, that would be yeah. tough to do outside. But yeah. Mark, that's that's a great question. Thanks for asking yep. it. And then uh, finally, Mark, uh, when the regular season is completed and a award season comes around uh, in later October, early November, how many White Sox players do you think have a realistic shot of winning a Gold Glove in 2020? Um, all right. Uh, I think that I think that Jose Bray would have a hard time winning a Gold Glove under the standard set of Gold Glove rules. Uh, because I think the vote would tend to slant towards someone with a reputation, like a Matt Olson. So I think that uh, even though he's had a good 60 games, that's not necessarily going to carry full weight if there's a a, uh, voting component this year. Uh, Luis Robert, uh, I think, is going to run into the same thing because Byron Buxton's right there with him. Uh, And then you have Kiermaier, who's not far behind and who has the reputation um, and then, uh, you've got behind the plate, I guess you've got Grandal, uh, could win it. I think the Grandal 
Roberto Perez matchup there could be a pretty good one. Uh, and I think if, if you're looking at the uh, if you were looking at it from a voting perspective, I think that the vote would be pretty split on them. Uh, I'd be curious to see what the statistics show, because the statistics make up a percentage of the vote. Uh, and I think the statistics would probably favor uh, Jose Abreu a little bit, so that might give him a shot uh, in that regard. But I, I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily expect that you're going to win um, that you're necessarily going to win one at you know catcher first, second, short, third outfield. Uh, you could win one at pitcher um, with uh, Jolito or hmm. Keiko. Uh, I know that that they are uh, they are well regarded there and. Uh, if you're talking reputations, they have the reputational uh, advantage uh, in that regard. Well, it is nice to see, though, as a team, as a collective unit, the Chicago White Sox have improved a great deal in the 60-game season of 2020, and that's helping them make the postseason for the first time since 2008. You can follow Mark on Twitter. He's at Mark A. Simon Says, and read his excellent work at sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. They also have podcasts, and they also do analysis for football, too. So for those that play daily fantasy sports or regular fantasy, Sports Info Solutions is an excellent resource, too. And Mark, thank you so much for coming on the Sox Machine podcast and uh, sharing your knowledge regarding the defensive metrics. You got it. Annie had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends, you can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's healthier made easier. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast, and let's preview the next series for the Chicago White Sox as they head to Cleveland for a four-game series. Cleveland is currently 29-24, and and the last 10 games have been a struggle. They lost seven in a row at one point, and they are 3-7 and in their last 10 games. However, in the season series between these two teams, Cleveland still has the edge four games to two against the White Sox. Offensively, Cleveland's offense has been bad in 2020. They are barely averaging more than four runs per game compared to the White Sox. The White Sox are now averaging 5.2 runs per game. But on the run prevention side, Cleveland is one of the best teams in the Major League Baseball as they only allow 3.37 runs per game while the White Sox are allowing 3.79 runs per game. So your pitching problems in this series, again, for Cleveland, uh, right now they are entering this series as the seventh seed. On Monday and all of these games, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, are at 5.10 p.m. Central Time. Game one is going to be Dane Dunning against Aaron Savali. And Jim Dunning aced his last test in his start against the Minnesota Twins, and he's got another one on Monday night. Are you expecting a similar performance from Dunning as Cleveland has an inferior offense compared to what he faced against the Twins. I should hope so, but, you know, allowing for some fluctuation in rookie performances, I won't hold him to that. I, I think that the Indians are a bit tougher than they look just because of, you know, the the strength of Ramirez and Lindor and how they can stack lefties against a righty. That just might be a different look for Dunning than he's seen in other starts, so I, I think he can't... Uh, 
quite let up even if the you know the offense drops off after about four spots in the Indians lineup. They'll they have some guys who can make them work and can maybe like you know stack a few uh, good at bats against them and and put up a crooked number. So you can't really let up. And uh, you know I would hope for you know six solid innings. I think at this point just to prove that he's or reinforce the idea that he's good for a postseason start. Uh, you know, behind Giolito and, and fingers crossed, Keuchel. Yeah, I agree. And right now, this could be the second to last start for Dunning. So if he makes his start on Monday and everything goes well, his last start of the 2020 regular season could be against the Chicago Cubs, which would be the Saturday start uh, for next weekend. So that's your Monday matchup, your Tuesday matchup. And I, I laugh a little bit. It's Ronaldo Lopez, who's been pitching better in his last two starts. But he's going up against the American League Cy Young winner, in my opinion, in 2020, uh, and that's Shane Bieber. And Jim, again, if Lopez throws like he did against Minnesota, I know it's very home run prone, but I think he's got a chance to keep the White Sox in it against Bieber if he lives within the strike zone. Don't walk Carlos Santana three times. But back on August 9th, that was a Sunday night baseball game between the White Sox and Indians. The White Sox did hit two homers off Bieber, and they did score three runs, and they had the lead until the bullpen failed to hold on to it. Uh, so it's not like the White Sox are going to be grasping for straws or this is an automatic loss for them against who should be the Cy Young favorite in Shane Bieber. How do you feel about Tuesday's matchup for the White Sox? Well, you know, we, we didn't feel great about Lopez squaring off against Kenta Maeda, and they won that game. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily for anything that Lopez did. He didn't, you know, well, I guess what Lopez did was keep him in the game. Uh, didn't didn't uh, leave with the lead or anything, but you know, kept him within striking distance. They came back against the uh, Twins bullpen, and they also knocked out Maeda after five. And, you know, Bieber will go deeper into a game than Maeda, or at least he's, you know, usually more good for that, uh, you know, six inning starts or beyond. But, you know, through Bieber's career so far, even, you know, uh, his last year where, you know, he was a, a Cy Young finalist and this year where he looks like the Cy Young frontrunner, uh, the White Sox really have taken decent swings against him. He hasn't had any, like, starts where he's just been overpowering or at least, you know, uh, the results haven't been a guy who just has the White Sox number. They, they usually stand in there pretty respectably. So I'm open to being surprised for that game just because... Uh, both elements, Lopez on one side, Bieber on the other, have uh, led to surprising results before. I want to believe. I want to believe Lopez can do it again. I'm quite worried. Jose Ramirez is really stepping up his game. He's been red hot for Cleveland, especially in September. Now he's one of the war leaders overall in the American League, and he's making a case for himself to be MVP consideration but again, if Lopez can just stay in the strike zone, avoid the walks, I think he'll give the White Sox a chance. And and hopefully Jose Abreu, who does so well against Scion pitchers, the tougher the pitcher, the better Abreu appears to be. If the White Sox can strike early against Shane Bieber, I think they'll give him a chance on Tuesday. On Wednesday and Thursday, it'll be Lucas Giolito against To Be Determined for Cleveland, but we have some insight on who that could be. And on Thursday, it's Dallas Keuchel to also be against To Be Determined. And on the Wednesday start, we think for Cleveland, it's going to be Zach Plesak, who has been outstanding against the White Sox in two starts this year. 
And on Thursday, it'll be the first time for the White Sox to face Cleveland's new rookie, Tristan McKenzie, who's been throwing the ball very well for them uh, in his appearances in 2020. But for Giolito and Keuchel, Jim, this will be their last start to the 2020 regular season. What are you hoping to see from both of them in their final tune-up towards the postseason? Well, I think for Giolito, he's basically had uh, the two worst starts of each of the last series, which I think is good in one sense because Dunning and uh, Lopez have stepped up, but also just you'd like to see him resemble that ace form because when the postseason rolls around, you're going to need probably an ace start, ace-like start from him at some point, you know, if they if they want to advance. So I'm hoping for more than we've seen the last two times where his command hasn't been that sharp. Um, with really any of his pitches and, uh, you know, just been long innings, um, a lot of extended bats, a lot of uh, going from ahead of the count to deep counts, kind of like Dylan Cease, and uh, just being harder to watch than others. So that's what I'm hoping for with him. And then Keuchel seemed like, you know, uh, his starts, uh, you know, his comeback start on Saturday was pretty lucky. You know, he got a big zone. That's not really lucky because Grandal and McCann have been doing a good job of getting, you know, all, you know, I think above average amount of strikes for, for pretty much all their pitchers. Uh, yeah, the big plate I think is somewhat of a constant, but just the, the fly balls he gave up, like no ground outs was a little uh, scary uh, and seven strikeouts, which I wouldn't count on him doing that again, at least over four innings. I can see him striking out seven over seven, but seven over four seems a bit uncharacteristic. So I think if he's back where he needs to be, I imagine that looks like six innings, you know, four to five strikeouts, more ground outs and weak contact, economical innings, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, Plesak, you know, when, when thinking about Bieber, like the White Sox swings against Bieber are a lot more convincing than their swings against Plesak. And, you know, I'm looking at Plesak's game log because he has a 1.85 ERA and he did miss three weeks because of his violating protocol in Chicago. And, you know, like he's got a 50 to four strikeout to walk ratio. But when you look at like his game log, uh, you know, he's faced the White Sox twice, the Royals twice and the Tigers once. And then the, uh, and, and he, he's allowed a total of two earned runs <laughs> in those, uh, one, two, three, five starts. But then when he's faced the Reds and twins, he's given up eight runs over 15. And he, he looks like a normal pitcher. You know, he threw a quality start once he didn't throw a quality start the other time, gave up five homers in those two starts. So it seems like there's gotta be a better outing for the White Sox against them at some point. I don't know if it's going to be the season, but I, that it kind of befuddles me because it seems like good offenses can light them up and the White Sox just can't figure it out. Well, hopefully they do. Something to note, the Minnesota Twins have Monday and Thursday off. So this is where the White Sox are going to make up that two-game difference. So if they could find a way to win the Monday and Thursday games against Cleveland, the White Sox can increase their lead back to at least three games, uh, picking up a half game for each of those days. And then the Twins are facing the Detroit Tigers on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, so we'll see if the White Sox can clinch the American League Central over this series against Cleveland. I think they can split this series, Jim. Uh, that's what I was hoping for against the Twins, and the White Sox found a way to win three out of four. Uh, so I am hoping that they can uh, surprise us again and, and, uh, and win this series. And if they do win this series again, they'll be able to split the, se- the season series against Cleveland five games apiece. And I think that would be a great story for the White Sox in 2020, be able to hold their ground against the Twins and Indians while dominating 
the Royals and Tigers winning nine out of 10 games against those opponents, uh, that would really reach that best case scenario that we were talking about before the season started for the White Sox. Yeah, I I think the same same thing worries that they get split out of the series. I'll be happy just because we, we got a question on Patreon from Will who uh, asked us if there should be any concern with the White Sox hitting right-handed pitching in important games. Um, and this series, I think, is going to tell us where they are with that. Um, you know, against the Twins, they were able to, you know, actually, we you know, to mention our... Uh, expectations for that series we both hope for a split they won three out of four they um you know it's pretty impressive performance they were at least able to you know sometimes they look lost but they were able to minimize or at least figure it out after like a bad turn through the lineup they were able to straighten out so hope there is that they you know that series has made them less prone to those spirals against right-hand pitching but you know the reds i think did uh pick out some vulnerabilities there. Um, you're getting some ugly swings with pitches bouncing in the left-handed batter's box. Uh, I was watching you know, the, at the Reds broadcast, as I mentioned, and the Reds analyst, I think it's Chris Welsh, or Walsh, one of the two, um, he said like he watched Anderson strike out on a pitch that bounced um, you know, like a 56-footer that was uh, you know, a foot and a half off the plate. And he, and he kind of, his response was like, and this guy's leading the league in hitting or trying to, <laughs> like it was, uh, not like in a, in a bad way, but just like, it seemed like he just seen enough bad swings, watching him take fastballs and then like king on the slider so much that he is expanding his zone to, uh, just, uh, you know, worrisome amounts. And, uh, yeah, he had the response where he just saying, was like, it seems like, you know, you should be able to get him out if you want to, he's got to be better than this. But from what we've seen, uh, at least at, at, at stretches, it seems like uh, maybe some pitchers overthinking with how to attack him. And I think this series, you know, provided that he can play, uh, will be a test to see like whether he was just maybe a little bit too aggressive or had a scouting report in mind that didn't match up or something that will allow him to get back on track. Because, yeah, they he took some bad swings. Abreu took some bad swings. They, you know, both recovered and and it almost seems like they're doing a rope-a-dope with pitchers sometimes where they look so overmatched that maybe like pitchers settle in relax and then throw in pitches they can crush but uh you know just when it comes to like good right-handed pitching like Plesak and, and Bieber who can execute uh that's uh, and McKenzie I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him or maybe I'm not looking forward to seeing <laughs> him but you know the the Indians have a way to just allow guys to execute over and over and over again and if uh you know Anderson is king on a pitch and the and the Indians know he's king on a pitch and I think same thing with the Brayu Jimenez uh you know if all those guys they, they think are looking for a pitch I think they're smart enough and they have the command enough to just you know hit that spot over and over again you know to where uh you know where you know police act's been able to frustrate the White Sox to the extent that he has so I think this will tell us a lot about whether they've either learned anything against right-handed pitching from the Cincinnati series or whether it's just something to manage and try to get past uh, before they get to lefties. I just don't know. We'll see, you know, as the standings uh, come into focus, just their chances of seeing a lefty or multiple lefties over the remainder of the season and into the postseason. Well, we'll be recapping this series in the final Sox Machine Live of the 2020 regular season on Thursday, September 24th after the White Sox Indians game. You guys could join us on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine and Sox Machine 
Com. But you had some questions for us this week, so let's start answering them next in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Socks Machine. Or helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash machine. And to start helping answering your guys' questions right away, Jim, our first question comes from Mark Hope. And we talked a little bit about the White Sox and uh, the sliders in the previous segment when previewing the White Sox and Indians this week. But Mark is asking, the White Sox lead the league in swings and misses on sliders and have seen the most sliders of any team by a pretty wide margin. Is that a troubling weakness or just a product of a team that swings a ton? Eighth highest swing rate in Major League Baseball overall. I would say it's both. I think it's also the idea that the, well, really the White Sox, not unique to the White Sox, but I think in the Central, uh, both AL and NL Central, there aren't a whole lot of left-handed starters. So uh, the pitchers they're seeing have that kind of arsenal where they're throwing stuff that fades away, breaks away from the hitters in the lineup, and the White Sox just happen to have a heavy right-hand lineup where they're going to be seeing a lot of that. I mean, the White Sox are 13-0 against left-handed starters, but other divisions, like in the East, uh, uh, the Red Sox have faced a left-handed starter 22 times, and in the West, 20 times is the max. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing like the White Sox are maybe just a little bit uniquely vulnerable here for um, just the limited slate of opponents they have. But I think as the White Sox you know, go into the offseason, as uh, hitters go into the offseason with plans, I think that will be a point of... Um, either focus for the hitters for the front office point of contention. I think when it comes to uh, maybe inside the front office for who to, who to keep, who to, who to look for upgrades for in terms of, um, you know, some guys might be a bit samey, you know, you know, where they just are right-handed and have problems, you know, the like a certain kind of pitcher can pick on them. So they might want to diversify their offense a little bit. Um, I will say it seemed like there was a little bit of progress with Luis Robert in this regard uh, over the last couple of games. Uh, he looked completely overmatched early, but you know, he drew two walks um, you know, on, on Sunday, and he seemed like he was picking better pitches to swing at. The, the contact still wasn't there. There was mainly opposite field oriented, uh, kind of either late on pitches or trying not to be too out in front and maybe just being a little bit, um, you know, not attacking the ball like he usually would, but... Uh, yeah, the, the contact seemed to be a bit, it seemed like it wasn't weak contact. It was just like unsure. It was like medium range flyouts to right field, but the pitch selection seemed to be better. So I'm hoping he's one guy who's not as vulnerable to just like three, uh, you know, barely tempting sliders out of the zone and he's in he's easy out. Uh, I think with Anderson and Abreu, it just seems like it fluctuates more based on just what kind of mode they're in uh, from at bat to at bat. Cause sometimes we've seen a Bray, just give up in a bat in one pitch and other times we've seen them just eliminate it and get a fastball to strike. So uh, it's going to be something to uh, just, I think monitor for the rest of the season. But I think going into the off season, it would help if they found somebody uh, like they thought Mazzaro or like they hoped Mazzaro was going to be. And like, we all hope that, you know, Bryce Harper might be an option for to where just a, a, a good left-handed bat that just makes the, pitcher selection from the manager on the other side a little bit harder to come by or at least you know requiring more thought 
Well, Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking, Jim, did the White Sox create a 40-man headache for themselves by opening spots for Jonathan Stever or Garrett Crochet? Not really, because the way the uh, 40-man bubble looks right now, um, yeah, it's, it's mostly bad news, but they don't really have anybody forcing the issue from that draft class. That's the Jake Berger draft class, and you know, given that Berger has not really been able to uh, withstand a regular competition for a couple of years now, he's not going to be poached by another team. Um, and, and then when you, you, know, you have Gavin Sheets behind him, and he's going to be kind of, a, I think, a fascinating one just because you know the White Sox left him off the 60-man player pool, and I thought he might be added at some point, but... You know, given that they have Zach Collins, given that they have your mean Mercedes, you know, a lot of pitch or a lot of players in that first base DH mold, mode, uh, mold, I should say. Um, it, it's, you know, not like they needed them in Schaumburg, but I also wonder, you know, given just the lack of minor league seasons, lack of games and, and lack of, uh, you know, um, looks for opposing scouts and, you know, people who might be trying to poach others' rosters either for, you know, roster crunches or Rule 5 draft, if they're just maybe hiding them a little bit to not have them picked and maybe to be able to leave them off. I'm not quite sure. I think if a team wanted to pick them, uh, yeah, he would be able to at least give them a look. Um, I think his batting eye is advanced enough to where he stands a chance, but I also think he's not that special power bat to where he would be able to show up right away or at least hit enough homers to offset uh, maybe just being overmatched by major league pitching. So I think they could leave him off if they want to, but even if they wanted to put him on, Tyler Johnson is the only other guy from that draft class who really looks like he needs to be protected. So uh, I think the White Sox basically are safe from now. They have some guys they can trim um, from the, the the roster after the season. So they shouldn't really have a crunch. I think it might, if it gets awkward, it's more about, you know, maybe if they want to add a bunch of guys. But even then, I think if they're adding players, hopefully they're quality enough to where the fringe guys they're knocking off really aren't going to be missed that much. Speaking of 40 man restrictions, you see that Luis Basabe is now getting playing time for the giants. Yeah, I saw that. He's two for 10. He's got an RBI. He's walked three times. He's got two stolen bases. I'm, I'm looking at who the giants are playing right now. And uh, yeah, it seems like, you know, there's a mix of teams that are trying and a mix of teams that are not. So wouldn't you know, surprise me, I suppose, if he had like, you know, uh, was able to take advantage of some of these lopsided scores and be able to get into some games. And uh, especially since we've seen more of these lopsided games show up. But, uh, you know, right now, I think two for 10, you know, it's for a guy who has the ability to swing the bat from both sides and might be able to get some good looks a, against uh, pitchers who are kind of his equivalent for double A, triple A talent that, yeah, I think he can uh, get some luck. I mean, I'm rooting for him. I think his his uh, White Sox career was just, I guess, a little bit unfortunate in terms of timing and injuries and so forth. So, you know, it wasn't, I think, a lack of anything that could really be his fault. It was just more a matter of just uh, circumstances. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor. And Mark is asking, it isn't discussed much, but if the season ended today, would Rick Renteria be manager of the year, Jim? Well, yeah, I think, you know, given that the manager of the year usually goes to the manager of the most surprising team, it would seem like, you know, he would be the front runner. I think the the one manager who has a better case, well, I think there's, there's you know, two teams that are still, you know, surprising or at least uh, where they are because of good managerial jobs and good, um, you know, talent 
um, or a good deployment of talent, and that's, you know, Oakland and Tampa. And I think Kevin Cash, especially given how the Yankees were supposed to look this year and how they were supposed to dominate and the Rays have basically been at the top for most of the season. And really, when you look at their depth chart, sometimes they only have three starters. I think you really have to uh, say that Kevin Cash has really managed well. I think, you know, Renteria, when it comes to uh, you know, the, the job as a manager, I think he, you know, he, he handles the soft stuff really well, like the soft skills. Um, you know, player relationships, expectations, patience, um, you know, defending his players while getting a good effort. I think he's good at that. When it comes to like the tactical stuff and, and, and not just like, you know, um, you know, the, the opener and stuff, but just in terms of, uh, how he goes about game planning, it's a very traditional game plan. He wants the starters to go five. He, uh, you know, tries to have his pitchers go one inning. He, you know, he, I think ultimately with the bullpen he likes, he doesn't get matchup crazy even when there wasn't a three batter minimum. So I think he's pretty much a, uh, traditional middle of the road manager, but I think cash, you know, given, uh, just the amount of platooning they do, amount of the openers they do, um, you know, the amount of players they cycle in and out of a roster in a given season. It just strikes me as he's doing a lot more uh, uh, string pulling to get that team where they are. And I think, uh, you know, if you're looking at like manager in terms of just the work involved in managing, uh, I think he's working maybe a little bit harder in that regard than Renteria is. So I think if Cash were to win it, uh, I would not certainly uh, be... You know, I, w- I wouldn't feel like Renteria got robbed. I think you know, he at least f- deserves to be top three. Yeah, I'm with you. I think he'll finish in the top three. I I don't think Mark Renteria is going to win manager of the year. I, I'm with Jim. I think it's going to be Kevin Cash with the Rays winning the American League East. And right now they have the inside track of being the number one seed in the American League. And uh, that's a surprise for some people. Not for me. I picked the Rays to win the American League and the World Series this year. Because uh, there's no team that embraces chaos better than the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, but the fact that the White Sox are in the position that they're in today, the fact that the White Sox have a chance to win the American League Central, we talked about Rick Renteria a lot this season, uh, defending Renteria at times, because I know that there's a there's a pretty loud, uh, as far as group on social media, that wants Rick Renteria to be fired after this season. And I don't think you're going to see a better manager in the free agent market to replace Rick Renteria. Um, But I think Renteria has done a good job. I think he's going to get some votes to be manager of the year. And uh, he'll be nominated. He'll be one of the top three. And I think that'll be a cool moment for him. Uh, I think it's already been a cool season for Renteria because the team has accomplished so much. And uh, I am excited to see what he can do for the White Sox in 2021. But Mark... Thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine, and you can help support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And speaking of that, a couple of marketing items. Uh, again, you can support us on patreon.com slash socks machine, where you receive additional content, an ad free version of the podcast, an opportunity to ask questions to our guests. As you heard already, some of our Patreon supporters got to ask questions uh, to Mark Simon. Uh, plus, there are levels of support that you earn socks machine swag, including our new coffee mugs. And how are we doing on that inventory, Jim? Still doing great. Um, yeah, I think we probably have. Uh... 
a couple more weeks of like straight uh, from the site sales before we save the rest for Patreon supporters. So I wouldn't delay too long if you're thinking about it and we would appreciate you thinking about it. Yes. And we also have socks machine shirts for sale that you can buy on the website, just $25 that includes shipping. And we have more inventory on hand. So we have mediums and larges back in stock. You can add a socks machine swag pack on top of your shirt purchase, which you get some socks machine coasters as far as our gear logo, uh, the cog, some socks machine stickers and buttons. Uh, they'll be added to uh, as far as your order. So again, that's another way that you can get some socks machine swag is to go on socksmachine.com and purchase our shirts. And again, they're just $25 and includes shipping. And we really do appreciate everyone's support. So thank you to our wonderful listeners and followers. And as far as programming news, as we spoke about on the last Sox Machine Live, which if you didn't get a chance to listen to that episode, for the postseason, our plans are to have a pre- and post-game show for every single postseason game for the White Sox this season. So even though I said earlier that the last Sox machine live of the regular season is going to be this upcoming Thursday night, we will have more live episodes to cover the postseason games. And we are really excited for that. Uh, and we're hoping that you guys tag along as well for those shows. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, big thanks to our guest, Mark Simon, for joining the show and to share his insight on the defensive metrics and the uh, candidacies for the White Sox to win gold gloves in 2020. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, including our newest platform offering, Radio.com and the Radio.com app. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Masks for family? Check. Garden cleanup? Check. Schedule back pain visit? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Okay, parachutes ready. Boy, the things I go through to get auto loan rates as slow as 0.99% APR for 60 months on new vehicles with PenFed. You are aware that you don't have to be a military member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA.